passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Ask you to get your Bibles out. Turn to Mark chapter 4. We're going to have to get moving today. We have a lot to cover in our teaching time. In the Gospel of Mark, there are only really two extensive teaching sections where we Jesus does a lot of teaching. They're found in Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 13. Today we begin Mark chapter 4, where Jesus is going to share a number of his parables. Now this morning, we are only get a chance to look at one of those parables, but it is a long one and it has a fair amount of uh, difficult complexity in it, in the dead center of it. It's 20 verses. Many of you know it as the parable of the sower. Others of you know it as the parable of the seed. But quite honestly, it is really should be known as the parable of the soil because it's really about four different types of soils. Now, what this parable is going to teach us about the kingdom of God is the way the kingdom of God grows from an evangelistic perspective. In other words, when we share the gospel with our friends and neighbors, what should we expect when we tell them about Jesus? Like, for instance, we're going to learn that we should expect that some people will be completely hard to the gospel and will never be able to penetrate them with the gospel. Others, we should expect that when they share with the gospel, they receive what is a very simple word and simple truth about Jesus, and it grows and mushrooms, and they are able to do great things for God and his kingdom. And you wonder, how did this take place? These truths are in this parable we're going to study this morning. This parable also teaches us why right now, as we've been looking at Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, he has thousands, tens, 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 people around him. But it explains to us that by the time he goes to the cross and he rises from the grave, there is just a few hundred people that are following him at that point and why the crowds become so thin. Now, normally, I would take and I'd read this parable, but to tell you the honest truth, what happened first service is I never completed the message. So I'm going to be cutting a few things out as we go along the way, just because this is such a large chunk of text, and I actually want to do complete the sermon for you this morning. So you know, it breaks into three parts. Uh, verses 1 through 9 is the simple parable itself. Verses 10 through 13 is sort of an aside where Jesus explains what is the purpose of parables and why he's going to start teaching in parables. And then he returns back in verses 14 to 20, and he explains the purpose of this parable. So I'm going to read the text as we work our way through this study, and then we'll have to just, you know, do that as we go along. So beginning on the top of your outline, we'll see this. The setting. It's Jesus returned to the Sea of Galilee. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. For those of you who are new, when he says here that he began to teach beside the sea, we often think a saltwater ocean. We have learned in our study of this gospel that the sea talked about here is the Sea of Galilee, which is essentially just a really large uh, inland lake that is a freshwater body, sort of like a big spirit lake. And 
what's going on as we've seen here Jesus is actually going back between back and forth between a small town called Capernaum which is a small fishing village on the Sea of Galilee but when the crowds get really large then what he tends to do is shift out of the town and goes to the seashore where there, it can handle a lot more crowds and he teaches from the seashore last week he was in Capernaum he was in Peter's house this is most likely later the same day. Crowds have really gathered. It's getting packed. He doesn't want Peter's house to get destroyed. So he decides he's going to go down by the shore, the seashore, where he can teach a larger group of people. In fact, it says this, a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Now, it says a very large crowd gathered around him. And this is to emphasize the size of the crowds. We've already seen 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 is not out of question to be around Jesus Christ. The Greek language here, when it says a very large crowd, could also be translated as the largest crowd yet. So we don't know how big this crowd is, but it is a monstrous crowd. Huge. Now, we've seen in our previous weeks of our study, such as Mark chapter 3, verse 9, that when Jesus is teaching in a crowd, he has a problem. And that is that people are constantly pressing into him. They want to touch him. They want to be around him. And literally, he has been in danger of being crushed to death, is what the scriptures say in Mark chapter 3. And they know that if they can touch him, the scriptures say that historically, everyone who touched him was instantly and completely Healed, So you could visualize that kind of press to be into him. Last week, the crowds were so demanding when he was in Peter's house, we saw that he and his disciples were not even allowed to have time to eat because the crowds would not give him enough airspace to put food in his mouth. This is the demands that Jesus is under. Mark chapter 3, we learned, it said in there, that he often kept a small boat ready when he was teaching on the shore and that he would sometimes need to go into that small boat. And this is what happened here uh, in chapter 4. The crowds are so demanding, they're pressing on him. He escapes into a small boat and goes out onto the sea a little distance away, like creating an automatic front row, you know? You can only tread water for so long, so you can't go and touch Jesus now. Now, I pictured this to myself, and I wondered... What would it be like for Jesus to teach on a boat to people who are on land? How would this come together? So I did a little research, and I found this out. Actually, next to Capernaum, there is a place called, and even called to this day, it's called the Cove of the Sower. Go ahead and put that up, Jeremy. This is what it looks like. It's not far from Capernaum at all. And... Um, what this is, is you can't quite tell from the angle of this picture, but you need to realize it's a gentle, sloping, bowl-shaped hillside, sort of put together like an amphitheater's. And actually, people have done tests that if you are down there on that little cove, what you say, if you speak loudly, it just continues to go up the hillside, acting like a small Roman amphitheater. And for years, people have assumed that this actually may be the place that Jesus spoke these, this parable that we are going to study this morning. 
the crowd gathered around him there to hear it. So what you have to picture on that um, graphic is take away the road. It wasn't there 2,000 years ago. Take away the trees. They weren't there either. But picture that bowl-shaped hillside with Jesus teaching. And what does it say in verse 2? And he was teaching them many things in parables. We're going to spend uh, some time in verses 10 through 13 unpacking the purpose of parables. But before we go there to the difficult theological section, let me just give you at this point some real basic introduction to parables and what they are. A parable literally comes from the combination of two Greek words, para and bole. Para means beside or alongside or to come up next to something. A parable is speaking a parallel. It's usually taking a parallel of something in the physical world and using it to explain something more complex in the spiritual world. For instance, uh, this morning, Jesus is going to use some of the simple, basic knowledge of farming and scattering seed to explain how the kingdom of God spreads in this world. He just used a physical parallel to explain a spiritual truth. Parables, by the way, uh, are not unique to Jesus. They're in the Old Testament. Parables can be very simple. They can be one sentence, or they could be two verses, or they could be lengthy and complex, like the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 is a far lengthier story. But it's all the same thing. It's telling a story about the physical world to help you understand something in the spiritual world. If you look at the New Testament, by the way, there is 60 parables that Jesus tells. Both of those are found in Matthew and Luke. There's some of them found in Mark, and those are the ones we're going to study. There's none of them found in John. So let's go ahead and dive into this parable. And we're going to just look at, at this point, the uh, understanding the physical nature of the parable, the, the, the earthly side of it. It says, the parable of the soils. Listen and behold, a sower went out to sow. We need to understand this. Some seed will fall on a hard soil when the sower goes out to sow. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Now, in the area of the Sea of Galilee, there is a lot of farming that takes place. We saw this uh, in the fall when we began our study in the Gospel of Mark, that the topography of this area is surrounded by mountains. The rain falls on the mountains, and everything slowly works its way down into the Sea of Galilee. So your fields would be getting a lot of groundwater as it worked its way down. So there's farmers here everywhere. The farmers, they did their ground very similar to how we do our ground. They did all their farming in rows. And they would break up the soil and they would scatter the seed. Now, uh, the way they would scatter the seed is after they broke up the soil using a plow with an animal or they plowed by hand, there'd be a farmer who would have a bag of seed over his shoulder. He would reach into the bag and he would broadcast the seed. He would throw it out. And you know, if you do this, the harder you throw it, the greater dispersion you get. 
So that's what he would do. But when you have to sow your seed by hand that way, it's really hard to control where it's going to land. And so some of the seed, it said, would fall on the path. Now, fields in this part of the world, uh, when you had a property line, people did not put a fence up on the property line. The way they marked the property line is the walking path was always on the property line. It was about three feet wide. And, you know, when people keep walking on a path, it becomes hard-packed ground, and nothing grows on that ground. If you've ever been out hiking, and you know what the path is, you can tell because nothing is growing on the path. If you've ever seen a two-track in the woods, nothing grows because that's where the, the wheels of the Jeep or whatever vehicle it was has pressed that ground down. So nothing will grow on this hard-packed ground, especially after it's also been baked by the sun. Now, uh, in addition to the hard-packed ground, he says in this area that the birds of the field came and ate up the seed that happened to fall on this hard-packed ground. Now, the birds love to eat up seed when it's on the surface of the soil. They see it, they fly in, and they take it. They call it free lunch. Some of you know that uh, at our house, we've been trying to grow a lawn, and it's not going too well. But I'm trying. I really am. In fact, this fall, I tried to reseed my lawn. So I got all kinds of big bags of grass seed, spent a lot of money on it, and got a cedar and walked behind the cedar one afternoon. And so I didn't get all the seed below the ground because I probably was putting in too much seed, but there was some seed above the ground. I didn't think much of it until I got up the next morning and guess what I saw in my yard? I didn't know where they came from. And I freaked out. I'm like, you know how much money you guys are eating? This is not bird seed. This is my lawn. You know, but this is what they're accustomed to in this part of the world. When the seed lands on something hard and it's exposed, the birds instantly swoop in and they take it up. The other seed he talks about fell on rocky soil. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And it immediately sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. When we hear rocky soil, the first thing that comes to mind is we think there's gravel or there's charred chunks of rocks in the soil because that's the kind of rocks that we typically have around here in Iowa. This big or this big, and we just pull them out and move along. That is not the kind of rock that is being talked about in this passage. The farmer would have already removed all of the surface rock in their fields. This is talking about what's called limestone bedrock. Large chunks of rock that are just beneath the soil and just below the plow. Now, you need to understand what Israel is like. It's far rockier of a terrain than we are here in Iowa. One rabbi I was reading, he said it this way. He said that when God created rocks and he put them on the earth, he made a mistake and put too many in Israel. The idea is they're all over the place. And sometimes the farmer would throw the seed 
the seed would land on what looked like good soil, but it's actually quite shallow soil because it has the limestone bedrock underneath it. What would happen is in the spring when there'd be, the sun wouldn't be too hot and the rains would be good, the seed would land on it, it would grow, it would germinate, but when it goes to put its roots down, it gets stuck. They can't go deep. In fact, one scholar I was studying, um, he mentioned that you can actually tell where the crop is above limestone bedrock because it's actually taller. Because instead of putting its energy into the root system below, it puts its energy into the leaf system above. But the problem is that those nice, gentle, cool springs don't stay that way, do they? It turns into the hot, baking heat of the summer sun. The groundwater dries up in that area very quickly. The plants dry up and they wither and they die. The sower, when he threw the seed, it threw in another kind of soil as well. Some seed falls on thorny soil. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain, is what the text says. Now, this soil wasn't hard on the surface. It wasn't hard just below the surface. It looked like good soil, but I had a hidden and deadly problem. It was laced with weeds. So as the crop grew up, the weeds grew up. And farmers, what do those weeds do to your yield and your harvest? Yeah, the farmers are looking at me. Thumbs down, right? Because they suck all the nutrients out of the soil. So you end up with very little harvest, or in this case, no harvest, because the weeds choked out your crop. Now, I want you to realize there's a progression that has been taking place here. The first seed fell on hard soil and never even sprouted. The second seed fell on that rocky soil. It sprouted but quickly died. The third seed fell on what looked to be good soil it sprouted, grew, went through its full life cycle, but its productivity was completely choked away. Now, I mean to ask you, as farmers, are you trying to grow seed or are you trying to produce crops? Are you trying to gain more seed, I should say? You're not trying to grow plants. You're trying to gain seed. So from a farming perspective, the seed that fell on every single one of these soils at this point is a complete failure because no crop was ever taken in. None of them proved to be fruitful. But there is some seed that fell on what he calls good soil. Let me read about the good soil. And the other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. We read that, and it doesn't sound that engaging. So we had a crop of varying sizes. But you need to put yourself in the, um, in the world of the ancient audience. A farmer at that time would be thrilled if they had a harvest that was six-fold 
or eightfold. A tenfold harvest was almost unheard of in the ancient world. Thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and hundredfold is a harvest of literally supernatural proportions that would only take place if God himself was involved in it. That is what's going on when he says the size of this crop. Now, before we go much farther, I want to ask you, what made the difference? Was it how the sower cast the seed? Or was it the vitality of the seed he sowed? None of it. The difference was in the soil. The receptivity of the soil made all the difference. And Jesus says this, and he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. At that point, you need to understand what he's doing. That's the close of his sermon. We're done. Okay, I told you my sermon about four soils, sower and seed, we're done. And everybody dismisses, and they leave, and they're all scratching their heads like, I don't get it. I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I don't understand why you're saying it. Why are you teaching us in these parables? What do they mean? Well, it's good you're asking that question, just like the apostles and his disciples were. Because what he does now is he explains to us why he's teaching in parables from this point forward. What is the purpose of parables, these parallel stories? When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. Like, we don't get it. Why are you using these mysterious stories now? And he will tell us, Parables serve two purposes. They reveal God's truth to those who are on the inside, and they conceal God's truth to those who are on the outside. Because now at this point in the gospel, you're going to have the insiders, who are his disciples, and the outsiders who oppose to him. Let's go ahead and see how this unpacks. Parables reveal the message of the kingdom to those who seek it. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. I am giving you secrets of God's kingdom and about how God's kingdom works. And we're going to see in a few minutes, the secret he's giving here is how God's kingdom will expand. Now, when we read secrets, we sort of scratch our heads on what that word may mean. It's the Greek word mysterion, which is from where we get our English word mystery. We instantly think, well, mystery. Mysteries are like unsolved crimes. Mysteries are like mystery novels and to find out who done it. What kind of mystery is this? In the Bible, when it uses the Greek word mysterion and translates it either in English as mystery or secret, this is what it means. It always means this. It means a truth about God and how he works that was hidden in the Old Testament times, but now is being revealed in the New Testament times. 
It's a truth about God and the way his kingdom works, I'm saying it again, that was hidden in the Old Testament, that now is being revealed in the New Testament. And Jesus is revealing to his disciples the way his kingdom works and expands. What is he doing? When he publicly, he teaches in a parable like we just read. But what does he do privately? We find this at the end of Mark chapter 4. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So he teaches this public story that's like a riddle. Privately at night, he explains how that truth illustrates and explains the kingdom of God. That's how he reveals the truth to the people. But there's the other side, and this is where it's going to get complex and may challenge things that you have held dear. Parables also conceal the truth to those who are outside of the kingdom of God or to those who are rejecting it. This is what it says in Mark 4.11. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That's strange. We're not giving you any more information so that you do not turn and are not forgiven. Whoa. That's a challenging verse. Some people say this is one of the most challenging verses in the entire New Testament. Let me unpack this a wee bit. Last week, we saw that the Pharisees and the scribes, they had been receiving straightforward teaching by Jesus. They've received it for years. They've seen Jesus do thousands of supernatural healings right in front of their eyes. They've seen him cast out thousands of demons from demon-possessed people. But what are they like when it comes to Jesus? Are the scribes and the Pharisees receptive to him? Not last week that we saw. They actually are adversarial to him. They are saying everything he's doing is being empowered by Satan himself. They are undermining him. They are opposed to him. Jesus just warned them they are on the edge of committing what is called the unforgivable sin. And from that moment forward, Jesus will now be teaching in parables. So that when he teaches publicly, and the Pharisees and scribes are there, all it sounds like is a riddle, a meaningless riddle they do not understand. Because Jesus is using the parables as a form of divine judgment against them because of the persistent hardness of their heart. He says, there is no more kingdom truth that you will get. My disciples, I will explain it to them. I'll explain everything to them, but I'm not going to explain these miracles of the kingdom to you. Now, he quoted out of Isaiah chapter 6 to talk about this. Now, Isaiah chapter 6 is a very good parallel for what is happening, and it's a great thing to quote. What was going on 700 years before for Isaiah, Isaiah was told to go and preach to the people of Israel. It doesn't say Judah, but 
anyway, he preaches to them, and God says to him, by the way, you're going to preach, but they're not going to repent. And just so you know, they're already in the phase of judgment. Nebuchadnezzar will come. He will destroy them. Well, why won't they repent? Because they have so consistently hardened their hearts to the consistently revealed truth of God that has been given to them by the prophets that they are beyond the point of repenting at this point. They are now in the point of just waiting to receive God's judgment. This is a very similar parallel to what is going on. You put this on the timeline. It is almost two years of consistent, clear teaching by Jesus that the scribes and the Pharisees have received. Almost two years of of healings and miracles, and their heart is completely hard to all of it, and they're claiming that he is demon-possessed. It's like they are beyond the point of repenting. Now, the idea of somebody being beyond the point of repenting, someone consistently hardening their heart to abundant and clear evidence to God and his kingdom, and God saying enough is enough is sort of a new concept for many of us. And I'm going to tell you that if you do the life group questions in the bottom of your sermon handout, and you go to Crosswinds TV, or you go to Christ to Our Culture and get the life group leader's worksheet, I have a a lot more uh, verses and texts that you can look up to understand this concept in your life groups. But let me just tease this out for you a little bit. Scripture says this in Romans chapter 11. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. God gave them ears that would not hear. That's a tough verse to wrestle with. Romans chapter 9, verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You guys remember in the Old Testament where God took his people out of Egypt? These people who came out of Egypt, they saw all the supernatural plagues that God put on Egypt and on Pharaoh. They walked out of Egypt and then crossed the Red Sea on dry ground with walls of water on their left and on their right. They went into the wilderness and twice were given water from the rock. Every single morning they had manna that came down to them from heaven to supply the food for their needs. Yet when they came to the promised land and uh, it came time to go in, what did they say? Well, I don't think we can do it. I don't think God's going to take care of us. After everything God had done for them. What did God do? Enough is enough. There's no second chances. You're going to walk in the wilderness in circles for the next 40 years until every last one of you dies. Your children are going to go in. You have rejected abundant and clear supernatural evidence multiple times that I will be with you and have been with you. Another example of this. Pharaoh 
Remember him when Moses came to him and said, let my people go. And the scriptures say that Pharaoh hardened his heart, would not let them go. Then God put a plague on Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt, and Pharaoh hardened his heart again. And God put another plague on Egypt, and it continued. But if you notice the text, it moves from saying Pharaoh hardened his heart to eventually God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. Then it flips and says, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And what happened was, God moved from accomplishing his purpose his, um, for his people in spite of Pharaoh hardening his heart to God accomplishing his purposes for his people by means of Pharaoh hardening his heart. In fact, the same thing happens with Jesus. God moves from accomplishing his purposes in spite of the scribes and Pharisees being hard-hearted and rejecting him, to God accomplishes his purposes by means of the Pharisees and the scribes being hard-hearted and rejecting him. Because it's their hard-heartedness that ultimately crucified Christ, which is the very reason he came to die on the cross to save us for our sin. So what we see here is there is obviously a tension there's a tension that exists in Mark and the rest of Scripture between God's sovereignty on the one hand and human responsibility and choices on the other hand. Both of them exist. Mark doesn't release this tension. I'm not going to try to release this tension. Both are true. But I will say this. It seems the pattern that it follows is this. Somebody persistently consistently over a long period of time hardens their heart to abundant evidence of God and his power and wisdom and then it moves from them hardening their heart to God ultimately hardening their heart. So that's how we need to approach this. Now that was the difficult section. From here it gets fun and easier. Now he says this, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Oh, guys, this one's easy. And then he begins to explain it. The sower sows the word. The sower at this point is Jesus. The word is the good news of the gospel. Soon, by Mark chapter 6, it'll be the other apostles who share the good news of the gospel when they're sent out. Today, it is us. We are the ones who sow the word. We share the good news of the gospel with our friends and neighbors. And this is what we need to understand. There's going to be different responses to what we share. Some hearts are hard and unresponsive to the gospel. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word. The hard-packed ground on the walking paths between the fields is a very good visual picture of a hard-packed heart. Many times the seed of the word of God is scattered on that hard heart. And you know what? 
You can put all the seed you want on that hard heart, and it will never penetrate an inch. It's going to be like a bullet off a rock. The problem is not with you and me in our sowing and sharing the word. The problem is not in the, <laughs> the impotence of the word itself. Where is the problem? The problem is in the hardness of the heart of the one who receives the word of God. It cannot be penetrated. We need to know this, that when we share the word of God with some people, expect they will laugh at you, they will mock you. You could share with them about Jesus all day long, give them every single book, do anything for them, and it won't go in an inch. Because their heart is too hard. It's not you that's the problem, it's them. We also see here that the birds represent Satan. That Satan wants to come and take away the seed of the gospel when we sow it. This is an incredible reminder that the, when we share the gospel, we need to understand we are not sharing this purely on a horizontal, natural level. We are involved, folks, in a spiritual battle. And Satan is actively working to take away the seed of gospel truth from those we try to share it with. How does Satan try to take this away? Sometimes he uses false teachers who seek to undermine us. In this situation, the false teachers are the scribes. They are actively working against Jesus Christ, trying to undermine him and take away all the truth he is trying to share. Sometimes he tries to just keep us super busy so we never have the time to pause and reflect. Oftentimes what he uses is distractions. Because when somebody is talking to you and you're distracted away, you have to come back, well, wh what did you say? I missed it. Some of you know that I used to travel with Athletes in Action Wrestling, and I traveled for a number of summers down to South America. We would go down there, we would wrestle the national teams of the countries, and then halfway through, we would stop, and somebody would share their testimony, and we'd share a simple gospel presentation. We did this all the time throughout the summer. What became an uncanny and often common occurrence, as soon as we got to the time where we're talking about Jesus Christ, I could guarantee you there's going to be constant distractions in the audience. A baby would just randomly cry out for no good reason, and every single head turned to the baby. All of a sudden, somebody would drop something in the back row, and you're talking about Jesus, every single head turns around. A bird flew into the building, and the bird's flying up, and everybody's watching the bird in the sky. Nobody's paying attention to anything you're saying. And I'm convinced that Satan's behind some of that, trying to take away the seed of the gospel so it will not take root in anyone's heart. Expect that. Some hearts respond superficially to the gospel, he says. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This is the seed that fell on that dirt that was actually very shallow because it had the limestone bedrock just underneath it. In this day, who do you think those people are? 
those people who would be the shallow ground would be called the crowds that are following Jesus. Remember, at this time, we have 10, 12, 15,000 people following Jesus. They want to be around him because he heals everybody. That's why they're crushing and impressing him. They want to be around him because he feeds everybody. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? Hang out with Jesus, get free lunch. But what happens as he continues? He gets a little bit further into his ministry. We're going to see he talks about that following him carries a cost. There's a price to pay to be his disciple. He talks about later, take up my cross and take up your cross and follow me. What do you think happens to the crowds at that point when they realize it's costly to follow Jesus? They scatter like cockroaches when you turn on the light. This is what it says in John chapter 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Because it cost them something. You need to understand that if you are a Christian, it will cost you something. Every Christian will suffer in some way or some form to be faithful for Jesus. That is a biblical promise you have to sink your teeth into and know. Look what it says in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's there. I'll give you an example of this I saw this past week. Some of you may have seen this in the news. There's a calligraphy studio in Arizona that's run by two uh, young women who are Christians. It's called uh, Brush and Nib. And what they do is they do custom artwork and custom calligraphy for weddings. And they, you know, they all custom artwork, they sign their name to the bottom of that piece of art. The problem is they live in Arizona. In Arizona, they have a law now that says you must completely and fully serve the LGBTQ community. If you do not serve them, you are fined $2,500 per day. You do not serve them, plus you're given six months in jail. Now, these ladies have struggled because they have people in the LGBTQ community who comes up to them and says, can you do custom artwork for our homosexual wedding? And they say, we struggle to do that. We're not just making random paper plates. This is a piece of art that we sign our name to that we are now coming across as endorsing your homosexual lifestyle, and we don't endorse that. We're Christians. Marriage is between a man and a woman. That's what we believe. Now, they're actually in the courts right now fighting this out, and the interviewer said this to them. He said, what happens if you lose? What happens if you have to pay these thousands and thousands of dollars in fines? What happens if you as young ladies end up having to spend six months in jail? And I love what the one lady said. Well, if we spend time in jail, we spend time in jail. But I will be faithful to Jesus. She got it, didn't she? Because if she had a faith that was like seed sown on rocky soil, as soon as times of persecution or it cost her something to be a Christian came, she would have melted away, but she's staying strong. The third soil is this. Some hearts will let worldly desires choke out the gospel, Jesus says. The others are the ones sown among thorns. 
they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is a soil where everything looks good. It's not hard on the surface. It's not hard below the surface, but it's a weed-infested soil. So as things grow up, the weeds grow up and choke everything out. These are people who, so to speak, seem to come to Christ, but deep inside their heart, they are really more interested in status. They are more interested in popularity. They are more interested in money than in their love and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. It's not apparent at first, it only becomes apparent over time what the true state of their heart is towards Jesus Christ. They are more interested in building their financial portfolio than they are interested in building their Christian character portfolio. If they were given the choice to be very rich, but to be grumbly and unkind, versus to live on a very modest income, but have stellar Christian character, they would choose earthly riches over godly character. They wouldn't tell that to you, but the truth of that is revealed over time as you look at their life. They are more interested in the label of the brand of clothes they wear than the way that they are identified by others in public because of their character, their kindness, and their Christ-like nature. What Jesus is saying is, folks, you must realize you cannot have both. You can't sit there and say, you know, I really am striving for worldly popularity and I'm striving for Jesus. One will always come out over the other. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money at the same time. Or in 1 John, do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. This world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. The last soil is this. Some hearts will receive the gospel, he says, and they will produce abundant fruit. But those that are sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Now, what is the difference between these soils? Ultimately, I want to tell you this. There are some people out there whose hearts have been prepared by God. So when we share the good news of the Word of God with them, the very simple good news of the Word, that Word will grow, it'll flourish, it'll be abundantly blessed by God, and their lives will produce an abundant harvest for God. Now, let me give you this application point. I'll give you the top one here in the interest of time, and the rest of them I'll leave you to study on your own. The first and primary application point of this text is this. 
there are four ways people will respond to the gospel when we share it. Their response is not based on the skill of our sowing or the vitality of the gospel seed, but it's always based on the condition of their heart. This week, when you tell some people about Jesus Christ, expect some of them will have a hard heart. It'll be like a bullet off a rock and you won't be able to penetrate. Just expect it. Some people, when you tell them about Jesus, will be excited, but as soon as life gets difficult, they'll fall away. Other people will be excited, and they'll seem to grow, but you'll notice no fruit in their life because it'll be choked out because they're really interested in the worldly things. But here is the best part of all. There are some people out there that God has supernaturally prepared the soil of their life to receive the word of God that you share. And not because of what a good skillful sower you are or because how effectively you shared the seed, but because it landed on a heart prepared by God, the good news of the gospel will enter their life, they'll receive it, and they'll grow, and they'll produce an incredible fruit for God and his kingdom. Be encouraged when you share the gospel. God will prepare the soil, and God will produce the results. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we come before you, and I thank you that we often feel so much pressure when we go to share the good news. We feel that we have to scatter the seed just right. And maybe we feel the, the temptation to even change the nature of the seed itself to try and make it more palatable. I thank you this parable tells us we don't need to do that. We just scatter the simple word of God, and we can trust that there'll be some people out there that you have prepared their hearts to receive that seed, to let that seed grow, and to produce an incredible harvest. And if other people reject that word of God, they're not rejecting us. It's just the hardness of their hearts that has not been prepared to receive it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.